to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I'm with my guest, Cindy Phelan. We are here to talk about boards because I know that is a hot topic for a lot of you out there, basically all of you out there. Cindy is a former ED who, like me, has seen it all, and now she's a fierce advocate for nonprofit leaders who understand the value in building strong boards. She's committed to disrupting the status quo to get leaders focused on the right things and move from intention to execution so they can attract more money, people, and awareness. She's an author, speaker, consultant, educator, and president of Create Possibility, and apparently is also a snowboarder. So welcome, Cindy. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me, Rhea. Such a pleasure to have you. So let's just jump right into it. Tell us briefly about yourself and how you got to the nonprofit world. We know you're a recovering ED, but tell us a little bit more about that. (laughs) So true. Yeah. So I got my undergrad in education and then spent the summer looking for jobs and working at YMCA. Long story short, never ended up teaching. I do now at the university level, but I never actually taught the way I thought I was going to in schools. I got the nonprofit bug and started working Oh my gosh, for several different nonprofits, mostly YMCAs from small to big, and was an executive director for 18 years in different situations dealing with with all the things that we deal with, right? Mm -hmm. And then about seven years ago, I realized I, you know, I was getting the itch and I, because I could never stay in one job longer than like four or six years. And I'd been in this one for a while and I was like, man, I need to do something different. I was looking around at other nonprofits and I finally realized, you know what, I can have more impact working from the outside and help. I mean, it's super cool to work for one nonprofit and have a super specific focus. And mine was always local, wasn't necessary regional or national reach. And I was like, you know, why am I not working with more nonprofits? I can help them build their boards because every time I would see nonprofits struggle, it was because of some sort of leadership deficit. And a lot of times it related to boards. And I was like, you know what, that's my sweet spot. I love doing that stuff. So started this consulting company. And here we are seven years later, just working across the country with all kinds of organizations doing all kinds of really cool things. Amazing. So let's just jump into it because what are some of the most common challenges that you see with your clients and their boards? Yeah. Boards can't live with them, can't live without them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the most common things I see is that there is a lack of strategic vision. In other words, they're so caught up in the here and now and what are our programs and services doing right now that they're not aiming for a big vision. And so when that happens, you know, you have with no clarity about future direction, Then there's all this confusion that leads to a number of other things from unclear roles of the board and poor recruiting, lack of focus. And I I love what part of your work does too, is looking at trying to keep things calm. Well, I got to tell you, when there's a lack of vision, when the board and key staff haven't sat down and said, here's the change that we want to make, here's some goals and strategy to help us get there. And when they're not laser focused like that, it's chaotic. It's a little crazy in, mm-hmm. addition, in addition to being inefficient and, and probably ineffective when it comes to the impact that they want to make. So that's one, that, that lack of strategic vision. And then unclear roles. And again, they're all related, right? So there's this whole management versus board thing. And board does this, staff does that, but do they really understand it? It's a weird shared leadership model. We got the staff, right, who are the experts in their fields. And then you have board members 
who are super passionate and care about what you're doing and hopefully bring expertise that's helpful, but they come and go. They're, but they're your boss. So how do we all work together and set expectations for our bosses? A lot of times I see EDs keep boards kind of at arm's length rather than getting them engaged and, and really using their talents. And then the other, the other thing I see all the time, it relates to recruitment. You know, we just, we've got to slow down and be intentional because mm-hmm. if you're not sitting back and saying, what is the ideal board profile? What does that look like? Do we have diversity of perspectives around the table? I mean, Sue down the street might be super cool and everybody likes her, but if she isn't bringing something specific that you know you need to advance your goals, plug her in somewhere else and find somebody else that has the leadership and the, whatever you need to get, to get your things going. So, you know, so lack of strategic vision, unclear roles, a weak recruiting system is a big problem. But I get, the thing I probably get called for the most is help me engage my board. They're not engaged. They're not showing up or they're not doing what I want them to do or they're not raising money or whatever. Right. So that's, that's just a huge one. And that's, that's critical. And I'll tell you what, the high performing boards, once they've got that dialed in and they've kind of operationalized it, changes everything. The right people in the right seats focused on the right things. Okay. So many questions, but one question that is coming to mind is, do you see different sized organizations that have different board problems or are they kind of common across all different sizes of organizations? I love that question. I got to tell you, I'm working with a national board right now that when you look at their board roster, you're like, you would say, holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't say holy cow, but yes, I got it. Something like that. Yeah. You know, you've got your fortune 100 leaders on this board from across the country, super smart, highly successful CEOs, right? And right now they're having the ba- this debate on what their roles are. Are we a governing board? Or are we a fundraising board? Are we mm. both? What about this? What about that? So I would say that probably the only, I think that the differences are relatively, the, the, the challenges rather are relatively the same across, mm-hmm. the, across the board. The ones that are a little more high performing, I would say, are the ones that are able to have that strategic vision. So this national board, for instance, which is made up of 25 people, by the way, has great vision and they know what their goals are and so forth but it's the how to get there and engage their board members appropriately. Some of the board members are complaining that their talents are being underutilized. So mm-hmm. again, again, it comes back to engagement. So I see commonalities across. So let's talk about board engagement. And I want to talk about fundraising in a second. But one thing that I know I personally underestimated is the value of relationships between board Mm. members. Mm -hmm. And often, like, they really just want to have a chance to hang out with each other and get to know each other and therefore see each other as colleagues. And I think my big mistake was, like, I just put them to work without setting that Mm. foundational groundwork. Is that something that you see in your other clients? Oh, my gosh. That peer-to-peer relationships, I'm so glad you brought that up because, that's really at the core of the work. I do straw polls with all the boards that I work with. And I ask the people that have been around for a while, the, the kind of tenured board members, if you will, why did you first join the board? And then I ask, why do you stick around? Why have you been here all this time? And it's either the first or second thing they say is because of the relationships mm-hmm. with, with the people that they're working with, right? That they love being part of this winning team, et cetera. They may say it in different ways, but it always comes back to those peer relationships. So when I work with clients, I'm constantly talking about how are you creating opportunities for them to get to know each other? And yeah, it might look like social time before or after a meeting, or maybe you have a year-end party. That's 
awesome to be thoughtful about it, but you can also create it within the work that you're doing in your meetings, have to, mm -hmm. have to do small group work or, or whatnot, build it in because that's critically important to them. I certainly underestimated the value of having board members spend the time to know, like, and trust each other mm -hmm. so that when hard things come up, which inevitably they will, there, there's a, a store of goodwill that they can draw upon. They've already trusted each other, as you say. Plus, there's a whole, then there's a whole accountability thing, right? High-performing boards own their own stuff. So if it's time to recruit three new board members this year, Board members need to own that. Your task force committee, whoever is leading that up, needs to own that. And then the conversations between board members are much different than if we are relying completely on the ED to lead that process. And again, that strength continues to strengthen those relationships. So important. Yeah, one thing that I recall an ED saying to me was, oh, it's great. My board doesn't bother me. They just rubber stamp and they just let me do what I want to do. And I was like, I don't know that that's so great, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it basically means like you do all the work. Exactly. Yeah. Think, think of all the opportunity that's lost. Strong boards are partners and working alongside the EDs and the key staff, right? When they know what their job is and they know they've been trained on how to do it, they're going to raise more money for you. They're going to, community engagement will be up. People will know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a missed opportunity for sure. So let's talk about a board board. Like when we have boards that don't show up, aren't engaged, aren't doing work, aren't answering emails, what are some of the causes of that and what can we do about it? Well, I think I've got a couple of key things people need to think about it. Success starts with mindset, right? So whenever we're feeling frustrated or overwhelmed or whatever the, it feels like, pick up board boards not showing up, et cetera, take a step back and think about how you're thinking about it. What are the assumptions we're making? Do we have some limiting beliefs that are getting in our ways? Do we think this person doesn't care anymore? Do, they don't wake up in the morning and say, let's see how I can ruin Cindy's day and be a crap <laughs> crappy board member. They don't. They have right. good intentions, but right. they're just busy or distracted, or maybe we're not tapping into their talent. So in order to reverse that, one of the first things I would do is say, let's make sure we've got the right mindset and we're focused on what's possible, that we've got a really clear vision about what a great, strong, highly performing board looks like, right? And let's talk about it. But we've got to treat people as individuals. And so having individual conversations with folks at least once a year one-on-one. -on -one. And again, those peer relationships, I love that. So it doesn't have to be a board chair, but could be, maybe it's an officer of the board that sits down with that person and says, how are you enjoying your board experience? Whether they've been there for five minutes or five years. And what are you excited about? How do you feel about our goals? How do you see yourself plugging in? And having those kinds of conversations, because that's going to then uncover any issues or frustrations that they might be having. Maybe they, maybe it's just something going on with your family or your job, but maybe they think your board meetings stink and are super, mm -hmm. super mm -hmm. boring. Then let's focus on engagement strategies. Like, do we have them plugged in in the right way? Have we trained them and equipped them to be successful regardless of, of whatever project it is they're working on or whatever the committee they're on? Do we have the right structure and, and support? Are our meetings, had, do they have the right balance of, presentation and opportunity for strategic discussion. Oh have God, Cindy. That's like my pet peeve. When like <laughs> you report out to death. I'm like, you have uh, 20 very intelligent, highly accomplished individuals around the table. Why are you, mm, the ED, talking the whole time? It doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense to me. 
Yeah, I love it. I don't want to see I don't want to see staff names on board agendas. This is a board meeting. When if you've got one operational update that couldn't have been shared in an email or in the board packet you sent in advance and you need to talk about it or there's a you need to talk about some HR something something something, well, go for it. Otherwise, it better all be board members leading the conversation. Mm, I know. For sure. So let's talk about changing board culture. So I know there are folks out there who inherit a board, right? And it may not be the most functional. How might you suggest going about changing the culture of the board and how long does it really take? Such a great question because boy, is it a process. And do you ever arrive? I'm not sure to be honest, right? But it goes back to having the vision for what the culture is that you want. And so I do this cool activity where I have them all just use real-time polling. And I say, using as many adjectives as you want to, describe the board culture that you want. And we define what culture is and how we work together and how we operate and how we communicate and kind of talk about what all of that, what culture means and then have them do that. And it shows up in a word cloud and it's super, it's been anyway, super impactful for the volunteers to just go, yeah, oh, wow, didn't think of that, but sure, right. Then you have them really focus on what they value out of that conversation, once they've kind of established the vision for the culture that they want, then it's like, okay, how are we going to, what does that look like? What are the behaviors that support that kind of culture then? What Mm -hmm. does that mean in terms of how we communicate? What does that mean in terms of how our meetings are run? Good example is I was working with a a group that really had a pretty high performing board, but they had a couple of instances where the loud voices were the ones that ran the meetings, made all the decisions, that it Mm -hmm. wasn't really group process and consensus, right? And so we had a great conversation about, do you really care about everyone's opinion? And is it okay to ask questions and challenge status quo? So that got them to a a couple of aha moments. And it's like, okay, well then that means in our meetings, we need to change this about it. And we need to allow time for dissenting opinions to surface. And we need to respect that. And we need to A, B, and C. So, So that's a way to get things started and get things rolling. But then you've got to have someone on the board, not the ED, own it. Mm -hmm. right? They've got to be the people that are saying, okay, this is what we said we wanted. We have had a great time, by the way, recently doing a lot of creating a lot of board culture statements that go right on the agenda for every meeting that are, you know, part of the letterhead, if you will. And it's, so if you have a little tiger team, then take from the conversation that you've had with the full board and come up with a, a draft or two of a board culture statement that can say we're committed to and you know words come out like teamwork and respect or equity whatever matters to them the most that really changes people's mindset and that's where it starts and then if you have somebody that's holding that and owning that and bringing back up periodically and actually talking about it that's when you can see the culture shift right Yes, I, I think that that's right. And I'm just thinking about instances that I know of, and often it's the people who have the loudest voices, and it's also, especially here in New York, the people who have the biggest checkbooks that mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. the decisions. And so I think, I think that's right. Which is how are you much more transparent about like, okay, this is actually how we're going to operate together. What would you suggest about board chairs that are either passive or not actively engaged with the ED to change board culture or hold people Mm -hmm. accountable. Yeah. So this whole culture thing, right? Once it affects your recruiting completely, because once you know what kind of culture the board wants, 
And as an ED, it's cool to sit back and go, okay, to get from here to there, maybe it's, maybe it's not that big of a difference, but for those who have a bigger leap to make, then the next question is, do we have the right people on the board to even, you know, make this shift possible and, and really embrace this? And if not, then your future recruiting needs to be aimed at that. And you have those conversations while you're interviewing potential board members. But when it comes to the people that you've got right now, sometimes it's, right, find, again, peer influence. So who gets it? Who does that person respect, the board member? Maybe it's another officer, and can there have a th- be a three-way conversation about, hey, you know, I love these conversations that we've been having about culture. I'm excited about some of the new changes that we're going to make, and let's talk about what that's going to take. We might need your role to shift a bit, and you might need something different from me. I just have learned the hard way, trust me, as an ED, that having those direct individual conversations is where the magic happens, not at the meetings, it's between the meetings and it's continuing Mm. to build that trust and relationships. And so if you've got a board chair, and it's really funny because I was just on the phone yesterday with someone about this because their board chair is very passive and sitting back. And so I said, let's start engaging that person differently. So we had a conversation with the board chair yesterday, actually, about an agenda for a new board member orientation, which he had been thinking that staffs to come up with and do, and you know, I'll show up sure and welcome everybody and it'll be great. We went through the agenda and said, as the leader of the board, as the person that they look to and technically report to, we need you to take the lead on A, B, and C. Well, to my surprise, just in that one coaching call with him, he totally turned a corner. It was never clear to him before what his role should be in that specific scenario, and he leaned right in. So we'll see next week how it goes. But you know, having those kinds of conversations and when you can engage their peers in it, I've seen make a make, that can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about fundraising here. So I know I love, I love fundraising, but you know, (laughs) a common refrain that I hear from a lot of executive directors is my board, they show up for meetings, but they won't fundraise or they don't think that fundraising is part of their job. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, I'm just going to open the floodgates here. What should the role of the board be in fundraising? Do you believe that there are board members who can be on the board who aren't actively fundraising? And what do you say to the board member who says, I'll do anything for you except for fundraise? So those are three questions in one, but I'll just let you go. Yeah, here I, here I go. Here's what I've learned over time. And yeah. here's what I talk about a lot when I'm at conferences and stuff. And it's everybody can fundraise, but it's, it's a whole mindset shift, right? Again, it's that culture, it's a mindset. What are we going to embrace? And language matters. I stopped using the word fundraise and turned it to philanthropy years ago, I stopped asking people for money and instead invited them to invest in the impact and the change that we're making in the community. I asked people to serve as ambassadors instead of fundraisers or campaigners or other words that we've used over time and thrown out that traditional language and said, "Uh uh-uh, let me explain something to you. This is what this is about right? It's about the ultimate beneficiary, the successful organizations that have boards that are fully engaged. Every single person is engaged in fundraising. They've adjusted that mindset. They've recruited well. They've talked about right up front what the philanthropic expectation is of every board member, and which I'll get to in just a second. And they understand 
that there's this cycle of philanthropy and everyone can plug in somewhere. If mm -hmm. someone said to me, for example, I'd love to be on your board. I'm super passionate. I've got a great network. I'm also really great at whatever, you know, maybe you're hiring me because I'm a CPA or an attorney or whatever. Did I see hiring? <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, I, I think like, you really are hiring, right? You're it is like, kind of an HR function. Right. 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 You're, it's an unpaid employment opportunity. Oh, I love it. Perfect. Yes. So as you're recruiting me, you know, you've been clear about what you want in terms of talent. But if somebody says to me, you know, but I'm but I'm not going to fundraise for you. I would ask them, how do you define fundraising? And I've done this many times. And they say, well, I'm not going to ask anybody for money. And I say, hey, hey, I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to do that either. What if you, you know, would you be willing instead to be an ambassador and tell our story and invite people to invest in our mission? Well, sure. That's a whole different. It's interesting. It's not always that easy, of course, in one conversation. But Again, shifting the mindset from a financial transaction because we've all got this funky hang up. I shouldn't say all. Many of us have this funky hang up with money. It's not nice to talk about it. Culturally, there's a stigma around it, right? Mm -hmm. We've worked so hard for our money. How dare we separate someone from their money, right? We're afraid someone's going to say no to us and there's that whole rejection thing. So people have their reasons and their legitimate reasons, for being anxious about this whole fundraising thing. So when you position it differently and really get them focused on impact instead of money, on the relationship with the donor instead of their money, it can really change everything. So I have them focus on what, on the cycle of philanthropy and there's five steps in it. Every board member can plug in somewhere. Ultimately, our goal is of course to have every board member invite people to invest, right? Which we used to call the ask. But not everybody will be comfortable plugging in there right away. So you can have them help identify people. You can have them help connect people to the organization by giving them tours or introducing them to the ED or whatever it might be, right? Through social media, there's a million ways to do it. Then you invite potential donor to invest financially in the cause and in the mission, then you thank them. Anybody can do that. Any board member can call up, right? And, and thank a member. And then stewarding. How do we keep them involved in the organization over time? And every board member can get involved in that too. So, you know, there's an educational piece that needs to happen in there somewhere up front when someone jo joins the board, especially if there's, this is their first nonprofit board experience. But, you know, beyond that, it's like, okay, so we've got people now maybe who are jazzed and are thinking differently about what quote unquote fundraising was. And now they're seeing it from the philanthropy side, but it's up to us, typically staff, to train them on how to tell the story then, right? right. So Cindy, I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a second, please. I, I hear what you're saying. I think everyone has their role to play. I mean, someone once gave me this analogy. It's like, we're we're painting a beautiful picture and like maybe you're a blue in the sky, but like we can all be part of it. I was like, that's very cute, but it's also not, not about money. <laughs> so, so where do sure. you stand on like give gets like hundred percent board giving and recruiting people who aren't able to contribute at say a give get level? Yeah. So hundred percent board giving. Absolutely. I do not believe in give or get it's give and get mm -hmm. now what the and back to your question about, you know, it does come down to money. Sure. People who can embrace the whole philanthropy thing understand that it's a means to an end. You've got to have money to fund your impact, but it always comes down to impact. So when you can shorten the distance between 
the donor and impact, that's where you're going to win. The more that you're connecting them to the impact, that's where the win is. And I have no illusions. I've done this myself and I've worked with a lot of organizations. It doesn't happen overnight, this whole shift. I've worked, (laughs) I had a board member who was one of our biggest donors who was not real keen on fundraising, even though he was a great example of a donor, right? So it took me almost a year to get him to come around to understanding this shift in thinking. And it was only after we had both been on a call to another donor and he saw me use different language and talk about investing in our impact that we walked out in the parking lot and he was like, so that's what you're talking about. So we have to be, it's not all rainbows and puppy dogs, right? It's change. And whenever there's change, you've got to manage it. And there's going to be perhaps some resistance or at least those that are going to be slower to come along. But 100% giving absolutely, give and get. I have gone away from prescribing a set amount for the whole board because I believe that the key to successfully building a strong board is treating them as individuals. So if you have somebody who, and again, it depends on what your organization's needs are, but if you're, you know, a small to mid-sized nonprofit and it's appropriate for board members to give anywhere from $50 a month. You know, is, is it okay if, if a board gift is only, and I'm doing air quotes right now, only around five $600 a year? Or do you need, in order to fund your mission, the board to be making $5,000 gifts or higher? You know, so, so you've got to bear that in mind when you're recruiting. But I don't think that, I don't think that there is any way that you can say that you don't have 100% board giving and look at others and expect them to enthusiastically support your mission, especially foundations. They're going to ask you that, as you know. Okay. So, Cindy, last question for you. How do you deal with the education of board members around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion? So, we know that board members tend to be a little bit more seasoned, a little bit more mature than nonprofit Mm -hmm. staff members. They tend to be a bit more homogenous from a racial and socioeconomic perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think we're living in a time where DEI issues are taking front and center. So I'm curious, Mm -hmm. how have you approached with your clients, both like doing education on the board and, and also bridging the gap between board staff and clients, which you know, mm-hmm. tend to also be a very diverse group of folks. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's such a, such a good, important, important, important topic. I start by defining diversity with them. You know, I start by getting permission to raise the topic because it's interesting how some of these boards who, as you indicate, are more mature and look a lot of like when they look around the room. Yeah, we probably could use some different different people on the board. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll think about that next time we're, you know, we're recruiting. Well, mm-hmm. let's back up. What does different mean? You know, what does diversity mean? So we go through that whole conversation and sometimes some pushback and sometimes people squirm and sometimes people are caught up in like checking a box of a certain ethnicity when in fact <laughs> It's so much more than that, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we dig into that and we ask questions like, does, it, does our board reflect the people that we serve and does it matter? Mm-hmm. Do we have, I help them understand that it's about 
the most important thing it's about is diversity of perspective, that you're going to make stronger decisions, that you're going to be able to serve more people better and have greater impact when you understand all of the issues that could possibly affect your mission, whatever your work is. Once you start talking about diversity of opinions, I've seen minds open up that way. So once that happens, then it's okay, so how do we do it? And that's not always easy. It's who can we go to that can help us with this? If you don't have anybody, sometimes your beneficiaries of your programs are the p- people that can help you the best or the families. I was working with an organization that serves seniors. Their board was almost all women and almost all over the age of 60. That's great, but holy cow, were they missing a, a whole boatload of perspective. So they started looking at the families of the seniors that they were serving and some other organizations that are serving. They went to elected officials. We looked at community leaders. And here's the when it gets hard, and, and we started involving more people in the identification of prospective board members because they just kept using this, the board members' networks, right? Well, after mm-hmm. a while, I mean, no wonder they all look the same and think the same. Mm-hmm. They all know the same people. But the other thing that we had to do was take a really hard line approach then when it came to recruiting. They had, I think it was four seats on the board available, and they started building this prospect list. But when they came down to vetting the list, they kept coming back to the same people and say, wait a second, where's the diversity of perspective here? How are we expanding and broadening our decision-making ability? How are we? And so those are the kinds of questions that you have to keep asking. And to have somebody from the outside say, wait, time out. We're not going to add another person over this age or of this industry, we've got enough of these, or remember these are the people and really stick to that ideal board profile that you've identified that's gonna give you the most diverse board that you need at the time, always looking back at your strategic vision and your goals, you know, so you can advance your mission. So those are some of just a few quick things that we've done that have started to move the needle. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. And, you know, it's probably another conversation for another time. But I I wonder if there's a tension between having a diverse board and and I'm specifically talking about race and, and socioeconomic to your point about is this board representative of the people that we serve? And mm-hmm. is there a trade off? with that and being able to have a board that raises significant resources. Because look, the truth of the matter is, in this country, most of the wealth is controlled by older white men. Yep. And so how do we both recruit and develop boards that are as diverse in perspective and experience and background as we would like at the same time, raising the necessary funds that we need for our organizations? Yeah, it is a, it is a deep topic with a lot, lot of layers. And I think that it comes back to assumptions too, right? I mean, we do know where the money comes from in terms of most of the philanthropic dollars and that's shifting. You know, I live in San Diego and I can tell you that the Latino population here invests a lot of money in our economy through charitable dollars and otherwise. And there's some assumptions in some people's minds about that, that that's not the case. And so when we really start digging deeper and looking at some of these issues, we can find opportunity everywhere. One of the, some of the organizations I love working with the most are ones that have mandates that their boards, their government criteria that their boards have to have 51% of their beneficiaries on the board. Their board has to be made up of 51% beneficiaries. Mm. That's awesome. Because going into it, there's all kinds of assumptions that get made around that, that people who are beneficiaries of this, let's say, health center, community clinic, couldn't possibly have 
the talent, the wealth, the whatever, right? That we need it around our board table. I'm here to tell you, I've seen the opposite of that. They might not bring the same degree of financial resources, but they know exactly what that community needs. And they know exactly what the hardships and challenges are. And those are perspectives that otherwise would never get voiced. So I think all of us, to your point, need to look at this DEI issue so much more regularly and deeper and open our minds to what's possible. Because when you have that growth mindset, you'll be amazed at where money can start flowing from that you never even thought of and what amazing strategic ideas will come from people who perhaps you might have underestimated. Mm-hmm. Well, Cindy, we have to wrap up. I really appreciate your being on the show today and we're going to have you back because I, I think we need to dive deep into this DEI issue. Awesome. I'd love it. Great. Thank you so much. So I'll make sure to put your information in the show notes for folks who want to get in touch with you and work with you. And in the meantime, thank you so much. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Rhea. This was fun. Yeah, same here. Take care. You too. 